Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel South Bay. My name is Pastor Brandon and I am glad to uh, be back here with you all again. And I would like to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. We did our introduction last week. We kind of got some background information, some context uh, on this epistle, this letter that Paul has written. And now we're actually going to begin digging into it now that we've kind of set the stage for everything. And so as I said before, Philippians chapter one. And before uh, we dig into it, I would like to pray one more time, and then we'll dig into the study together. Father, we thank you for this evening that we can be here. Thank you that we can seek you, Lord, that we can know you, that we can search your word, Lord, that you desire for us to come to you. Lord, you desire to be known by us, Lord, and to know us. And so I pray this evening that you would speak to us, Lord, would you challenge our understanding of you? Would we grow uh, in our knowledge of you? Lord, if we've come with any misconceptions about who you are, I pray that you would clear those things up tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow. Lord, that we would grow in holiness. Lord, that we would grow in your love and your character as we read your word. And so I pray this evening I would simply be your mouthpiece and nothing more. Lord, this, this body, Lord, we don't need what I have to say. Lord, we need what you have to say. Lord, we need you desperately. And so I just pray that you would be here, that you would be speaking, that you would be teaching us, that you would be instructing us this evening through your word. And it's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be taking the first six verses or so today, starting with verse 1. Now, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making, or for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership with the, in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what we have here is kind of our our introduction to the book. And so Paul kind of lays out uh, really quickly who's writing this book, who he's writing to, and and really begins kind of with like an introduction, um, you know, telling him about why he's writing this letter a little bit. And so we're going to be digging into that a little bit. Notice it starts off with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you are probably like, well, Brandon, you told me Paul wrote this last week. And just Paul. You didn't mention anything about Timothy. That is still correct. And if you notice what happens later, he begins to speak really just singularly. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And he goes on and goes on like that. Now, really, if you want to think about kind of what's occurred is that Timothy had an investment in this church. He took a special interest in this church. This was actually a church that he himself helped found. And he also shared Paul's burden and outlook for ministry. And so if you want to look at it this way, 
Paul is still the singular author of this. It's not like Timothy is a co-author of this book. But really what it is, it's kind of like when you, um, you, know, you write like a text message, you write like a, a letter to somebody, you say, oh, by the way, so-and-so says hi. It's, it's that kind of thing. Like you still wrote the letter, like you're still the author of it, you're still the author of the text message or whatever it is, but you're kind of letting them know, hey, by the way, Timothy's with me and he wants to let you guys know that he loves you as well and he cares about you. And so he's affirming everything that I'm writing to you. So that's really what's happening. So it was written by Paul, but Timothy's still attached to this because he has a vested interest in this church and cares greatly about it. And notice their title that they give themselves. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I really love this introduction because there's really any number of things that, I mean, you probably could start this out with, right? Paul could just write, oh, well, you know, apostles in Jesus Christ or biblical scholars or, you know, I, I mean, there's any number of ways that he could have introduced them. And yet he says, servants in Jesus Christ. And really, that word servants is actually more accurately translated slaves of Christ Jesus. So much so that they reckoned that everything that they were belonged to Christ. They wanted their minds, their bodies, their spirits, all of it. They wanted it to be at Jesus' beck and call. That's the statement that they're making. Now, oftentimes, this word carries a fairly negative connotation. It did back then, and it still does, right? Like, that's not normally a word that we like hearing come up. But what's actually really wonderful about this word in this context is that it was actually not a negative thing. It was actually a commendation towards both of them. That their character was such that they were actually servants of Jesus. That everything that they were, they wanted it to exemplify Jesus. And so as Paul is actually writing this about Timothy, as I said before, it's a commendation. It's describing those that are faithfully and humbly committed to serving Christ at their own expense. So that's really the statement that he's making about not only himself, but about Timothy as well. And so it's actually a statement about their character, their nature, who they are, and what is most important to them. And so I find it really cool that this is what Paul has chosen to introduce himself in Timothy. He says, if you want to know what I care most about, this is it. It's serving Jesus and giving everything that I have to him. And so they were servants of Christ Jesus. This is actually also an Old Testament term if we want to dig into it a little bit further. In Exodus 14.31, it was actually really um, a sign of having a special purpose, a special calling, if you will. And so this was actually said of Moses in Exodus 14, 31. You don't have to turn there, but it says this, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So once again, it carries actually a much more positive connotation, a positive relationship to Jesus. And it really carries more the idea of their instrumentality rather than their servitude. It's not like they were necessarily just these, you know, that somehow Jesus is just kind of this slave driver and he just kind of makes them do all the things that Jesus doesn't want to do. It more carries the connotation that these were people that God used to minister to other people. And so they were servants. And so they begin their introduction and they say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. 
Now, once again, Paul uses or picks his wording very carefully. And notice what he calls the, the people at Philippi. He doesn't just call them churchgoers. He doesn't say Christians. He specifically uses the term saints. Saints at Philippi. Now, it might be really tempting to read this as if somehow they had kind of attained perfection, right? Like, when we think of a saint, we think of somebody who's kind of got it all together. They, you know, they probably don't really make any bad choices. Like, there's somebody who is just of utmost character and moral integrity. But he's not calling them perfect. That's not the, you know, that's not what he's insinuating with this term. He's not saying that they are perfect people at Philippi. You know, it's all the perfect people there. That's who I'm talking to. That's not what Paul's saying. But he's referring to how Christ sees them. He's not referring to their their present nature, to their present struggles as they presently are. Because if we're really being honest, like if someone were to come in here and say like, oh, you know, and the saints at South Bay, like someone must be like, eh, 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 right? Like, like, eh. Like we know ourselves. Like we know that we've got got baggage, we've got stuff that we deal with. I mean, we, we know the things that we think and do, right? And we know if we're really being honest, like, we're not always saintly, are we? But he's referring to how Christ already sees them. That they're saints in Christ. That they're righteous in Christ. And even though they're being made righteous, as far as God is concerned, it's as good as done. And so they were the saints at Philippi. And specifically, when he calls them saint, he's actually really referring to them as the set-apart ones, these people that are set apart for the Lord. And this separation really has kind of two parts to it. It's twofold. First, they're separated from the world. But that's not really sufficient in and of itself, right? Like, you'd kind of be separate from the world, but still actually not be godly, right? Like, you could kind of just remove yourself from the world, maybe, you know, I mean, you could just completely abstain from, like, pop culture and all these things. But that doesn't make you a righteous person, Like, you could just plant yourself on an island in the middle of nowhere, away from anybody else, and you'd still find ways to sin, right? And so, that's not the whole truth. Though they are separated from the world, it also states that they're holy and faithfully pursuing being like Christ and pleasing God. And so, the heart of the matter is not simply a determination to not be like the world, but a wholehearted determination to be like Christ. And so when he's calling them saints, that's what he's calling them. You are people who are set apart by God for the purpose of becoming like Christ and spreading the gospel. For knowing God and making God known. And this really, I think, exemplifies the Christian life pretty well, right? The Christian life is one of being centered around God's will, centered around God's presence, and really centered around God's grace, because it's his grace that makes all of those things possible, isn't it? And so, as he refers to them as saints, he's really reminding them of their status before God and what God's called them to. And so, on one hand, this is very much an encouragement. Hey, you are saints in the Lord. You are people who are being perfected and transformed by the grace of God. But at the same time, it's also a challenge. Because with that comes what? Live up to your calling. Be the saint that God's called you to be. And again, we're not going to attain perfection in this life. But that doesn't mean that we don't try. That doesn't mean that we don't still pursue holiness and pursue the the character of God in everything that we do. And so they were saints because they were becoming like Christ. And then he says to the overseers and deacons, 
Now, this is a weird little interjection, and to some degree, we have to first consider that even though these terms appear in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the epistles, they're never really clearly, clearly defined. Like, this is exactly what a, like a deacon is, this is exactly what... Um, Hold on, I already forgot the other term. You guys ever have that? You, like, forget something almost immediately. Overseers, there it is. So, like, you know, it never clearly defines, like, this is an overseer and this is a deacon. Now, there's some principles that are laid out in the pastoral epistles, if you think about, like, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Like, there's some things that are laid out, some qualifications, but it never necessarily clearly describes, like, these are the very specific duties done by these very specific people. Now, that being said... Oftentimes, in general, overseers and, or maybe your Bible says bishops, uh, sometimes, I mean, really this carries the connotation of elders, it's all kind of the same thing. And they were responsible, really, for shepherding and pastoring the flock of God. That was kind of their, their job. And so, their responsibility really was oversight of the church. Now, much beyond that, it doesn't really get much more specific. But secondly, you had deacons. And these were likely church leaders who had kind of a specific service, um, you know, specific responsibilities, and more than likely they were probably administrators, if you really want to look at it that way. But either way, this shows us that there was some form of church government. Now, you're probably asking the question, it's like, okay, like, Brandon, where are you going with this? Why are we talking about church government? Why are we talking about deacons and elders and overseers and all this stuff? Because for whatever reason, Paul has specifically addressed them. And I think there's a likely reason for that. It's very possible that he's addressing them specifically because they were responsible for collecting and sending the gift that he received. Remember the church at Philippi? They actually sent him uh, some help, right? They sent him some, some financial help as he's in prison. And they did this on a couple of occasions. And so likely he's actually addressing them specifically because maybe they were actually specifically responsible for making that happen. So he wanted to encourage them and lift them up and thank them for that. But you also notice from here on out, he kind of goes back to addressing everybody as a whole. So still, the saints at Philippi is really the, the greater audience that he is specifically writing to throughout this letter. And so it says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus, or at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is he kind of uses several greetings in this, because oftentimes a, a common greeting was what in Jewish culture? It was shalom, right? Like you'd walk up and say, shalom. And oftentimes you would say grace, but he says grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's parse these, these words out a little bit. First we have grace. I think most of us have understood this, right? Grace is God's unmerited favor. And really all we're saying is that it's this undeserved favor from God that restores us and our relationship with God. That's really what grace is. Rather, God does good towards us. He blesses us even though we don't deserve it. That's the wonderful truth about grace. And if you really want kind of like a practical example, this is what it would be like. This would be like somebody walks up to you, straight clocks you in the face, and then you buy them ice cream. Right? They don't deserve it. You don't owe them anything. If anything, you have every right to walk away from this, right? And instead, you buy them ice cream. That's grace. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. And so really, as Paul is saying grace, he's really saying, may God's grace be with you. And then he says peace. Now, biblical peace 
is so much cooler than we oftentimes give it credit. Because when we think of peace, we tend to just think of like an absence of conflict, an absence of war, right? Like we just think of people not fighting, and that's peace. But peace, when it comes from the Bible, is much bigger than that. That's part of it, but it's much greater than that. And in fact, it carries specifically the idea of wholeness or completeness. That there's balance. And so it carries this idea of complete well-being. So as he's telling them peace, he's saying, may all things be well with you. And it's manifested in a reconciliation towards God, towards others, and even inner peace within ourselves. That's really what's in view when he says peace. So he's not just talking about the absence of conflict, but he's talking about this complete, total well-being of the person. And so peace. It's this inner assurance that God ministers to our hearts, that keeps us spiritually confident, even in the midst of of turmoil. Think about what Jesus said when he was talking to his disciples at John, or, uh, in John 14. I'm sure most of you will probably remember this verse. But verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be, what? Afraid. And so that's what's in view when he says, peace. So he says, grace and peace. May all things be well with you. May God's grace be with you. And I find the order of these words very interesting. Because once again, both of these words are likely meant to be both a greeting and a petition. So he's actually saying, may God be gracious to you and give you peace, is also what he's probably saying in the very much the same breath. He's giving them a greeting and giving them a petition towards the Lord. But I believe the order is significant. Because if you think about it, there can be no peace without grace, right? Like, how can we really have peace with God if we have not also been first saved, right? Like, that's the whole reason we need grace. Because apart from grace, there's no salvation. If there's no salvation, there's no restoration. If there's no restoration, then we have no relationship with God. It's just gone. And then what are we lacking? Peace. Like, at that point, all we have is judgment. That's all we're left with. But if we've been shown grace and that grace has been received, then we also have peace with God. And so he says grace and peace. We cannot experience the peace of God and peace with God until we've been transformed by the grace of God. And so he says grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice he says from God in Christ. Because once again, both grace and peace find their source in who? Jesus. They find him in God. And again, this is actually clearly a reference that Paul believes that Jesus was God because peace from God and the grace from God can only come from who? God. So therefore, Jesus must be God. He has to be. And so it's Jesus who distributes those things. And then he gets into the body of the paragraph. So this is really where he begins to kind of unpack his letter a bit. That was just the introduction. And now he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And he says, I thank God. 
Paul was thankful to know and to labor with these saints at Philippi. These were people, once again, that he was very fond of, very encouraged by. I mean, clearly their relationship was an encouragement to Paul. I mean, you don't write that type of stuff to people who are, I mean, constantly kind of bogging you down and draining. Like, it's kind of hard to write stuff like that, right? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be patient or loving with those people, but this is the type of stuff that you write when people are encouraging, when they build you up, when they strengthen you, when you... When you think about them, you go like, oh, thank God for those people. <laughs> I'm sure most of us have probably got somebody like that in our lives, right? People that we interact with that we're thankful for. They faithfully embrace the Lord and the gospel message enthusiastically. I mean, that, that is worthy of thankfulness, isn't it? These were people who shared his heart, his mind, his concern. I mean, these, these were people that he co-labored with in the gospel, and that's why he's so thankful for them. And then notice he says, in all of my remembrance... Of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And notice it really seems like Paul kind of repeats the same idea, doesn't he? Adding emphasis to the statement. In all his prayers, he always gives thanks for them. It was never wavering. It wasn't something that he was just kind of like sort of thankful for them. And then other times he'd pray for them, I was like, ah, yeah, I'm really actually not thankful for these guys this time around. Like, this was something every time he thought about the Philippian church, every time he thought about them, he was always thankful for them. It was always a constant source of encouragement to him to think about these people. And so every time he prayed with them, he was always thankful for them. And so he clearly wanted this church to know how much he loved and appreciated them. And I'm sure this church, when they received this letter, they likewise were in turn were encouraged, weren't they? I mean, it's nice to know when, like, when you've encouraged somebody, when you've lifted somebody up, when they're thankful for you. Like, that can be deeply encouraging on the opposite end, can it? And so he was always, always, always thankful for them. And then notice, he said he made his prayer with joy. And then, once again, this was joy despite his circumstance. I mean, think again where Paul's at. He's in prison, likely in Rome. And from what I understand, prisons were not too nice back then. There's a very good chance that he's probably been beaten. He's probably a little beat up and bloody. Like, I mean, this was no, you know, this wasn't like he was staying in like, you know, some, you know, some suite somewhere. And yet, despite his circumstance, he has joy. And this is going to be a major theme that he's going to unravel in this book. That despite his circumstance, despite all that's going on, he still had joy. And so clearly this is a very warm and personal letter. This was not just like some generic greeting, some generic letter that he was writing to these people that he basically could have just signed in a different name and sent it off elsewhere. This is a very deeply personal issue for him. He very much cared for them personally. See, it was not a burden for Paul to thank them. It was not something where he's just like, oh, I should probably let him know, you know, I'm thankful, right? But it was something that he very much wanted to do. He didn't feel like it was a duty. He didn't feel like he, you know, he owed some kind of debt to them. It's like, oh, well, they, you know, they gave me money. I guess I should probably thank them for it, right? Like, that wasn't Paul's attitude at all. He was very thankful for them, and it was genuine, loving affection that he was writing this. I love the fact that it says that he wrote this with joy. Because again, he had joy despite his circumstance. And hardship really does one of two things, right? It either makes us bitter or it makes us better. That's pretty much it. There's not really any middle ground with that. 
We either become angry and upset and we get frustrated. And really, in those moments, can I just say it? Like, we're really getting angry with God. Like, no matter who we may think it's actually about or the situation might be actually about, we're just angry with the Lord. That's what it is. Or those things make us better. Those things ultimately make us more thankful and more appreciative of the Lord and more appreciative of his gifts and his goodness. But we'll not dig into that too much because we're going to talk about that much later in the book of Philippians. But clearly, this was a, a people that he was very thankful for, people that he loved, people that he was very concerned about. And then why was he thankful for them? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, fellowship is usually the New Testament word that's actually used for partnership. And so really he's talking about fellowship. But this isn't just fellowship where you kind of have that comfortable fellowship where you're kind of just hanging out with people you like, right? Spending time together, like eating. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Like that's definitely an important component of fellowship. But it's much deeper than just kind of like a bunch of Christians kind of hanging out in a social club. But these were partners with Paul in spreading the gospel. They were engaged in the task of making Jesus known. And so what that did is that actually deepened their fellowship much beyond simply just, oh, we kind of just hang out from time to time. We kind of go to this like church social club. But they actually spent time ministering the gospel to other people. I mean, I don't even know how to explain it to you. It's just like just go on a mission trip and you'll experience this. Whether it's with the team that you're with, like you just get really close really quick because you're doing ministry together. And then not only that, the church that you're ministering alongside of, like, um, you know, I didn't go on this Columbia trip, but the previous one when we went as a high school group, like you hang out with the leaders down there in the church and you just get to know them. it's like your family before you leave and you've only seen each other for a week. That's because you co-labored in the gospel. And so it produces this deep abiding relationship. But notice he calls them partners. And I find this interesting because they weren't really in close proximity, right? Like close physical proximity. These were not people that Paul was necessarily hanging out with all the time. These were not people that he was spending large amounts of time with, that they were actively like doing outreaches together and preaching the gospel on the same street. Like, in fact, largely there was like 800 miles that separated these people. And yet, he considers them partners. See, it doesn't necessarily matter whether you're in close physical proximity to be a partner in the gospel. Because even though Paul may have been the boots on the ground work, the church supported him, didn't it? The church made all of that possible as they're helping him and sending him support and praying for him. Like, they helped make that happen. I mean, you think about it when you build a building, right? Like, it's not just that you don't just need a contractor and some drywall guys and a plumber and all those things, right? Like, don't get me wrong, they're all necessary. But you also need surveyors, you also need an architect, like you need somebody to finance the whole project. And they all had a hand to making that building. And really, without one of them, stuff just wouldn't get done, right? And so, very much the same thing is true here. We can assist in the spread of the gospel in more ways than simply just, you know, actually being there with missionaries. I mean, it could be prayer, it could be financial support, it could be letters of encouragement. All of these things actually make us partner in the work that's happening. And so what's cool is for all of, the, for all of you who supported like the Columbia Missions team, you were a part of that, even though you might not have gone. Or maybe you were praying for them, you were a part of that. And so we're partners when we co-labor together in some capacity. 
We don't just have to be physically together to be able to do that. So once again, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'd highly encourage us to all be able to go out and to all go spread the gospel and to go on missions and to do all those things together. But we don't have to be physically get together to co-labor. And that was the wonderful thing about this church. This church, even though they weren't always physically with Paul, they were still with Paul. They still ministered with Paul. They just did it in a different way. And they made that ministry possible. And that's really what it is. Joyful fellowship is found and maintained when it's found in the gospel. I mean, that's, that's why they were so close. They co-labored together. And what's really cool for us is that this applies across the board. This is not just something that applies to churches or co-laboring on a missions trip. I mean, this applies like within our families, with friends that we know. Like when we are united by the gospel, it creates fellowship. It creates unity. Can I tell you the, the quickest way to, to heal busted up marriages if, is if both the husband and the wife pursue Jesus together. Same thing with your kids. You have problems with your kids. If you can both pursue Jesus together, what happens? It's unity. And so when we pursue Christ, when we're concerned about the gospel, it produces fellowship. Now, again, stuff is not always that cut and dry, right? Life is more complicated than that. People are more complex than that. And it's not always simple as maybe the principles make it sound. But that's the ideal. If we're pursuing Christ together, if we're pursuing the gospel together, and we're co-laboring together, it produces unity. It produces fellowship. It produces oneness within the body of Christ. And then Paul moves on and he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm sure of this. This is Greek word. He says, I'm sure, I'm confident. It's in the perfect tense, which shows us that this is a very settled conviction within Paul. This is not something where he's simply kind of like, well, I'm kind of sure. Well, God might do this. Like, it is a completely settled matter in the heart of Paul. I mean, his confidence really was akin to the confidence that you have in, like, the sun rising, right? Or that when you touch water, it's going to be wet. It's, like, very much the same thing. There's a very expected reality that you are confident in. And that's what Paul is feeling. And this is a very pivotal verse for this little section that we're looking at. And here's why. Because Paul's joy, thanksgiving, and fellowship all arise out of his confidence here. Every last one of these things is tied to this. And what was he confident in? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He was confident in the finished work of Christ. That's what he was confident in. That's why he's writing what he's writing. That's why he's joyful. That's why he's thankful. That's why he loves these people so dearly. And why he's so excited to be speaking with them. It says, he who began a good work in you. Now, there's some people saying that, you know, they're referring to their generosity and their giving, but that doesn't really make any sense, right? Because it talks about until the day of Christ Jesus. Like, they're just going to keep giving and 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 giving. Like, see where I'm going with this? Like, it doesn't really quite fit. And to use a very theological term here, it's, it's kind of clunky with the verses, right? Like, it just doesn't seem to fit in the broader context. And so really what Paul is referring to here, it was their salvation. 
that God began this good work in them. God saved them. God made them a new creation. God began that work, not man. That was not something that we started. That was something that God did. And yes, man believes, and we receive Christ, right? It's not like we have no part to play in this. But this is something that God did. God began this work of salvation within us. God's the one who transforms us and changes us. We can't save ourselves. Only God can do that. It's a free gift of God that we freely receive. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 talks about? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God, lest any man should boast. See, he knew that God began that good work in them. God started that. God was responsible for that. God initiated that. That was something that God did in them. And then he makes the very obvious inference here. So if God started something, don't you think he's going to finish it? Does God just kind of start something and then abandon them? Like, okay, sorry guys, like, kind of got you going, but you figure it out. Like, if that's the case, we're all in trouble, right? Like, we're all in some serious trouble. I don't know about you guys, that scares me half to death thinking that that, that would be the truth. Like, because we're still sinful, right? Like, we still struggle. We're still not perfected in Christ. We need help. And yet, that's the wonderful truth that he's going to tell them. He says, this is why I'm confident. Because the God who started the work in you is going to finish it. See, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's definitive. So if God starts something, he finishes it. He doesn't leave tasks half-finished. You know, even though we're currently saved and we have been made righteous in the eyes of God... We're also still being made righteous, aren't we? Because I don't know about you guys. Like, again, like, I uh, woke up this morning and don't really feel like a perfect human being, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I sinned, like, the minute my feet hit the floor. So we're still being made righteous. And in that sense, even though we're saved, we're also being saved. In fact, Paul would talk about this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's actually going to get to that later in this letter. And he's not saying, like, hey, save yourselves. That's not what he's saying. What he is actually saying is like, hey, you've been saved. Now work that salvation out in every aspect of your life. Like, he doesn't just save us and then leave us exactly as we are. He saves all of us, not just part of us. And so he's making all of us new. So if he started our salvation, he's also going to make sure that it's finished. He's not just going to abandon us. He's also responsible for our sanctification, isn't he? And so he still works in us. You know, as Paul would actually write in 2 Corinthians 4.16, that the inward man is being renewed, even though the outward man is perishing. We're being renewed. We're being transformed. And so, why Paul's confidence? He said he's confident in this. Why is he confident in it? Again, Paul's confidence is not based in human ability, past achievements, his own persuasiveness, but rather in the power and the love of God that desires to see his people changed and transformed and actually fully made new. That's why he had confidence. Paul very naturally moves between these ideas of divine initiation and human agency. And again, like he's recognizing, hey, you guys supported me. Hey, you guys blessed me. But hey, that was also really God working through you. That was God working in you. That was God who's transforming you and giving you that desire to be generous, to be kind, to support me in the message of the gospel. 
Now, this kind of brings us to that often, you know, that, the question that pretty much every pastor gets. Like, okay, well, is there free will or is God sovereign? And I have an answer for you. Yes. It's both. That's actually what the Bible teaches. As far as God's concerned, those two things actually aren't at odds with one another. That somehow God is both completely sovereign, completely in control of everything that happens, everything that's going on, and yet man also has moral agency, free will, makes decisions, has to believe. Right? I mean, if you really look throughout the scriptures, that's what you see. You see those two things going side by side. Now for us, that's hard to accept, right? Because I think our our feeble human brains kind of go like, what? Like, I don't see how those two things intersect in a way that makes sense. But as far as God is concerned, there's no problem between those two things. And to perfectly illustrate this, there's actually a passage of Scripture in Isaiah that I think perfectly addresses this whole issue. Uh, As you often know, Israel kind of was always doing, like, the thing they weren't supposed to, right? It's kind of their their shtick. They were always getting in trouble, they were always following God and serving God, and then they'd kind of take a detour, and then God would have to give them a spanking with like the Babylonians, or in this case, the Assyrians. And so Isaiah 10, he writes this, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath, and I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets." But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations. Not a few, for he says, are not my commanders all kings. And not Kalnil, like Carchemish. And not Hamath, like Arpad. And not Samaria, like Damascus. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images. So clearly what we see is that God is going to use the Assyrians to give Israel a whooping. That's the context of this. Israel is continually doing the things that they're not supposed to, and God's like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to kind of do something about this. And so he sends the Assyrians. But then notice what it says next. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So God uses the Assyrians and wields them basically like a weapon against Israel to kind of get them back on track, and then he judges the king of Assyria for it. Again, you see those two things kind of going side by side. And yet, God is also what? Righteous, just. He's still good. And so somehow God uses the heart and the king of Assyria to not only judge Israel, but then he also still holds them accountable for what's in his heart. Now, that's one more negative example. But here's the wonderful truth about this, is that if God has begun a good work in us, he's also going to make sure that it happens. That that is going to get finished. You know, as I like how J. Alec Motyer put this, the perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God within the saints. And the wonderful news is, is God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he doesn't fail. He never makes mistakes. He doesn't blow it and all of a sudden go like, oh, yeah, actually, I was going to make sure you're perfectly sanctified, but I kind of made an oops back there. It's not going to happen. Sorry, we're not going to finish that project. It's not who God is. 
Like, failure is not an option. In fact, with God, it's not even a consideration. Like, it's not even something he has to worry about. It's just like, I just always do everything that I set my mind to. (laughs) I always complete everything that I start. I never fail. I never make mistakes. Which for us is weird, right? Because for us as humans, like, we pretty much always make a mistake. I mean, just try to put together something from Ikea, and you'll inevitably turn the same piece around six times, even though there's only four sides. Like, but with God, he always does what he finishes. He always finishes what he starts. And he does so perfectly. And so he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And notice, there's a definitive timeline on this. It's at the day of Jesus Christ. And though he doesn't know when that day will be, he is sure that God will actually finish that work. That there is a timeline to adhere to. There is a schedule that guarantees the desired outcome. It's going to happen. As I said before, failure is not an option. Now, what's wonderful about this is this carries two ideas. First of all, that sanctification is an ongoing process. And it will continue until we leave this earth. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, I'm very thankful for that. That God does not expect me to be perfect the minute I wake up in the morning. And that his grace is sufficient. That his mercies are new every morning. That he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to to continue to change us, to continue to challenge us, to continue to make us more like Jesus. But the second thing is, is that one day we will actually leave this earth and be the full-fledged new creation that God calls us to be. That we will actually be without spot, blemish, never to sin again. We won't, I mean, anybody else excited for this? Like, you won't ever struggle again. Like, your brain is not going to betray you. Like, like, your heart and mind will actually be purified in Jesus. And only good's going to come forth from it. That's what Jesus has in mind. And he's so confident in it that it's going to happen. It's a done deal. So, why would Paul tell them all of this? As he's telling him, hey, I'm thankful for you. Hey, I'm, as I'm praying for you, I'm always joyful to give thanks for you. Because his assurance rises from the exerbable facts and evidence of their lives. They were taking care of his needs. They were ministering to him. They were sending him financial aid. They're saying, hey, we're, we're supporting you in this. They were concerned about the spread of the gospel. I mean, there was, you could actually see the gospel at work in their lives. Like, it was not something that they simply just knew. Like, oh, you know, I care about the gospel. But they so cared about the gospel. Like, hey, we'll, we'll send Paul money if it helps him spread the gospel. Hey, we're going to pray for Paul. Hey, however we can support you, Paul, in this, like, we want to support you. You saw that bared out in their life, their care and their concern, their love for the gospel, their commitment to spread it. It's all born out in their lives. They were committed to the truth of this, the gospel. See, our professed love for the gospel is measured by the sacrifice we're prepared to make in order to make its progress. And you could see that born out in their lives. They loved the gospel. That's what they cared about most. And again, I'm not saying they were perfect. I'm not saying that they, had, they didn't have other things that also concerned them. But they wanted to see Jesus known. And so, given their generosity and their assistance in spreading the gospel, they clearly had cause for assurance. And so did Paul. And that 
is what prompt him, prompted him to write this, to be thankful for them, to be thankful for them in his prayers, to joyfully pray for them. That's what prompted this. It was this assurance. Now, what does this mean for us? First of all, and really what's cool is that basically we're just going to work backwards through this text. First of all, in Christ we're secure and we have everything that we need. That's the central truth behind all of this. We're all a work in progress. He started, in a, work, he started a work in us that he's going to finish. That he's not just going to abandon us. And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel, that God saves sinners from beginning to end. It's not like he just kind of starts that and then like you can kind of falter and like all of a sudden like, oh, well, actually, you're not saved anymore. Now we've got to go back to the beginning. Like, like when he starts that work, he finishes it. And so we can have confidence in the work of Christ in our lives. He doesn't abandon us halfway, nor does our sanctification ever become a work of a flesh that it simply just rests on us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so he's always molding us. He's always shaping us. He's always transforming us. And sometimes that looks like we go backwards. But oftentimes, that's really just God exposing something else in our lives that needs to go, isn't it? That, hey, you know, he kind of worked on one thing. You're like, wow, I'm doing pretty good. And then he kind of, like, pulls the blinder off and goes like, ooh, yeah, we've got to work on that. Like, I can tell you, having a two-year-old has absolutely done that to me. I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Like, and then, like, you know, all of a sudden I have a two-year-old, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's some ugliness that lurks down in there in my soul. Like, you know, like, we're all the work in progress. And the Lord is changing us and transforming us. And so we're secure. We have everything that we need. And it is that gospel, the second thing, that unites us. Again, that's one of the issues that Paul's actually going to be addressing with them. He's concerned that there might be a little bit of disunity, a little bit of dismay. And yet it's that gospel, it's that security in Jesus and in the finished work of Christ that unites us as believers. Joy and unity are found when we are confident in the gospel. Confident in our salvation. Confident that God is working in us and those people around us. Like, have you ever noticed that's one of those things that will instantly kind of shut down your bad attitudes? Like, maybe it's just me, but when I'm thinking something I shouldn't about somebody else and I get frustrated with them, I was like, oh, I can't believe they did this for the umpteenth time. And all of a sudden it's just like, hey, Brandon, they're a work in progress too. That's things a little bit. (laughs) You're right, Lord, they are. And oftentimes that's enough to squelch my bad attitude. Because I remember that they're also a work in progress. They're also somebody that God is working in and transforming. And when we're confident in the gospel, we also confidently spread the gospel. And so it's that gospel that unites us. It's also that confidence in the gospel, the third thing that produces thankfulness. It has a way of kind of just eclipsing everything else. It's like everything else could just be going horribly, but when you know that Jesus is still at work, it allows you to weather those things. And I'm not saying it makes them any less difficult. I'm not saying that you won't still have times where you cry at night and have difficulty and frustrations. But it also gives us this anchor to cling to because we know that God's doing something in the midst of it. See, when we're confident that God completes the work that he starts, we also know that every situation we find ourselves in is actually something that God is using to make us more like Christ, no matter what it is. Even if it doesn't make any sense to us in the moment, we can be confident, God, you're doing something in this. And I may not know what it is, 
but you're doing something. Maybe working some bit of my character out, some defect that I have in, in maybe my, my morality or whatever it is. God's working in us in those moments to make us more like Jesus. And so we, get to, we also get to see God's redemptive purposes together. So when we're confident in the gospel, it produces thankfulness because we actually get to see the gospel at work. When you get to see those people when the light bulb finally turns on, like you've been preaching the gospel to them, or maybe they're a Christian but they've been struggling with something, and all of a sudden like the light bulb turns on, isn't it like one of the coolest experiences? It's like they get it. It happened. <laughs> and then you're super thankful for it. It produces this gratitude within you because you got to watch God use you in that moment to minister to somebody else. That's a cool experience. That's worth being thankful for. Again, that God would even actually use us to do that in the beginning, right? Like in the first place. Like, I don't know about you. If I were God, I probably wouldn't pick me. Like, I'd be kind of like that last kid picked for the team. Like, just like, yeah, I don't know about that Brandon guy. It's a little sketchy. Like, just have to do so much work to make him useful. But God doesn't think about us that way. And that he actually desires to use us to reach other people, even though we're imperfect, even though we make mistakes, even though we still have sin that he's working out. He uses us. That's cause for thankfulness. And so, how are we going to be confident in the gospel? Well, one, remember what Christ is doing in you. Secondly, remember that because of the grace of God, you have peace with God. It's actually because of that work that he's doing in you. It's because he did for you what you could never hope to do for yourself, myself included, that we have peace with him. God made a way where there was no way. God's in the business of of making us whole and restoring us, that he desires to make us content in our given situation, whatever it may be. This is the wonderful truth that unites us. And so remember the grace of God that gives you peace with God. And secondly, if we're going to pursue fellowship, if we have confidence in the gospel, if we're going to pursue fellowship, we need to pursue being both a saint and a servant. That it's not just simply something we call ourselves, but that it is actually something we daily pursue. And again, we're not going to do this perfectly. We're still going to make mistakes. We're going to have days where we look more saintly than others. And we're going to have days where we're more of a servant than others. But it should be something that we pursue every single day. If we want fellowship, that's what it takes. It takes resting in the grace of God and pursuing Him, living a life that's pleasing to Him and being a servant that is completely given over to the will of Christ in everything that we are. Like being a Christian is not just kind of like what you do on Sundays. Like maybe you're here tonight and that's kind of what you think being a Christian is. Oh, you go to church on Sunday night or like Sundays or Thursday night. Like, that makes you a Christian. It doesn't. Like, do you want Christ? Is Christ your treasure? Is Christ your greatest reward? Is he, like, is he what you live for? And again, I'm not saying you're going to do that perfectly. And you're going to have other things that you still have to concern yourself with. But is he your dominant purpose in life? Your dominant pursuit? Is he, is what, is he what's most important to you? That's what it takes to be a servant. It takes faithfully pursuing Christ. But that takes confidence in the gospel. And understanding that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. 
And maybe you're here, and that work has not begun yet. You don't know Christ. It's no mistake that you're here. In fact, it was God bringing you here to hear the word, to hear about the grace of God. Take a step of faith. Trust him. Believe in him. Pursue him. And know that he's faithful to complete that work. You don't have to clean yourself up. That's one of the biggest misconceptions people have about the gospel. Like, oh, well, I'll kind of clean my act up and then I'll come to God. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He didn't say, go get your act together. Go get all cleaned up. Go get the mud off your shoes. He said, just come. Because here's the reality. you got no hope of doing that apart from Christ. But know this, that if he starts that work in you, it's going to happen. He's going to change you. He's going to transform you. There's hope for you that many in this room will attest to. That Christ actually wants to make you a new creation. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel. It's all grace. We don't have to get our act together. It's not about works. The works come after begin, like the Lord begins to work in us. That's something that occurs as evidence that God's actually doing something in us. That we begin to change. What we care about changes. The way that we view the world changes. The way that we think about people changes. What we do changes. What we don't do changes. All because of the grace of God. And so this wonderful truth is for you too. He who began a good work in you, or he who may begin a good work in you tonight, is faithful to complete it. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to your people. Lord, thank you that you truly do complete that work in us. Lord, that you don't just start something you're not going to finish. And thank you that, Lord, when we're feeling at our worst, Lord, when we feel like we've maybe sinned one too many times, we're frustrated, Lord, you're still working in us. Lord, you don't abandon us. But, Lord, that you are still sanctifying us. You're still transforming us. And I pray that that would be our confidence tonight. And, Lord, with that, would that ignite unity within us? Lord, that we'd have extra grace for one another. Lord, that we'd all understand that we're still works in progress. Lord, that we're not yet perfect or perfected, but we're being made perfect. We're being perfected. We're being transformed. And one day we will be as you already see us. But until that day, would we also give grace to ourselves, Lord? And would we faithfully pursue you? And Lord, that in and of itself should be plenty to give us thankfulness plenty to give us joy in the darkest moments that you, Lord, are still working in us. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Give us a wonderful evening, Lord. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that you'd spur them to talk to somebody, to talk with a pastor or the person sitting next to them, whoever it may be, and Lord, that they would come to faith in you. Lord, even if it's just right there in their seat right now, Lord, that they would just turn themselves over to you and say, Lord, I've been trying so hard to do something that I can't do. And so would you do it for me? Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys. And we'll see you next week.